Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections, and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guest today is Riva Lera. Riva is an artist, writer, and curator whose work focuses on issues of physical identity and the socially challenged body. She is best known for representations of people with impairments and those whose sexuality or gender identity has long been stigmatized. A longtime faculty member of the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, Reva is also an instructor in medical humanities at Northwestern University. Welcome to our shelves, Reva. It's a really great pleasure to have you here today, kicking off this new season of the podcast. So thank you for joining us. I could not be happier. This is an adventure. Well, first off, I have to say that I found your memoir, Gollum Girl, which was published by Virago last year, absolutely fascinating. I think I love the way that you weave the story of your life and your journey as an artist with something of the sort of social history of disability through recent years, which again, you know, I opened my eyes to all sorts of things. But also you end up leaving readers thinking about bodies and embodiment in, in entirely different ways. But I also thought it was a kind of stunning piece of art in itself, you know, in and of its own right, and beautifully put together, I should also add, by Virago and your American publishers I think did a really good job but I suppose I'm very interested in this side of things in particular because going from being an artist who's I think as I came to understand throughout the book and correct me if I'm wrong but collaboration is so much at the heart of what you're doing when you're painting pictures of your subjects whether it's some of your more interesting kind of work where you've actually asked people to take a collaborative part in the kind of work in progress your risk paintings which we might perhaps want to talk about a little bit but also you're very aware of issues of consent and kind of letting other people you know you're not you're not painting pictures of people who aren't able to give you their consent to not be part of that process and I suppose I'm interested in what it was like to go from that sort of artistic practice to suddenly being by yourself, writing a book that was sort of all about your own experience and, and much less collaborative, I imagine. So I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that. Well, that was partly true. First off, one of the arguments I had with my editors going through the process, which is a long process, was that they kept saying to me, but we want to know about your life. We don't want to know so much about all these other people. And I kept saying, but my life is these other people. My life mm -hmm. is completely intertwined with the lives, not only of the people who I have uh, depicted, 
but the people who have changed my understanding of embodiment, of sexuality. You know, as I say through the book, I start by describing myself as constructed by human hands in the tradition of the golem, the tradition of the animated built body of Mm. the monster. But I also try to make the point that as my life went forward, that I was just as constructed, and I don't mean artificially. I mean, I think we're all a factor of who and where and what and what our world is and what our time is. But in very positive ways, I had people who interceded, who changed my thought about, I had thought that being disabled was tragic and something to be ashamed of and was deeply, deeply depressed for most of my life. And not that I always showed it, but I absolutely loathed who I was. And I started to meet people who just turned that around, gave me different ways to think about it. One of the things I've been wanting to say is that there's a a, a performance artist and musician I've, I've worked with in the past named Nomi Lamb. Mm-hmm. Nomi, who's brilliant, I so recommend that people look her up. She's now, I think, artistic director of Sins Invalid, an Oakland-based disability-centered performance group. But when Nomi was very young, she wrote this essay that said, in essence, just because you become politicized and aware and, quote, woke, although that wasn't the word, I'm not even sure that word isn't, it's probably so 19, uh, so 2018, but... But it does not mean that things stop hurting. People often become dismayed with themselves if they've become politicized and become aware of the machinery of society. They become angry at themselves that that things still hurt, that there still is stigma, there still is, you know, the attack that comes out of nowhere. So as I've thought about my relationship with other people in my life, it's not that they turn me into somebody who was seamlessly equipped to deal with whatever life was coming at me, but gave me context in order to at least work through it. So when we talk about collaboration, first off, yes, the writing process was largely solitary. I did work with editors before and after Penguin acquired the book initially. But after I would have written a chapter about somebody, if they were still alive, I would send them the chapter. Right. Yes. So I would send them this thing and I would say, first off, is anything wrong? Second, have I, have I said anything? Uh, uh, for listeners, my hair is doing sort of a cockatoo <laughs> thing on our video right now. It's morning hair, Monday version. Anyway, I'm trying to like beat it into submission while we're talking. Don't worry. It looks great. <laughs> I, you know, I would ask if I'd gotten anything wrong, but I also would ask, am I saying anything that is painful for you or right. that you don't want to have disclosed? And so the reader will never know that there were quite a number of changes. There are times that people asked for a pseudonym. There were things I had to take out that significantly changed my story and what I could talk about. One story in particular that I won't touch on, but the version of what I say in the book is not entirely accurate and really was frustrating to deal with at first. Mm -hmm. But my main aim was that unless somebody really deserved anger 
I didn't want to hurt anyone in the book. And most of the people who deserved my anger, as I felt, were dead. Mm. So, you know, for the most part, I tried to give my collaborators in the book or my subjects in the book as much autonomy up to a point as I did in my um, visual portrait work. I feel like that's incredibly generous of you as a writer, in a way, because, well, I'm just thinking about it, because memoirs are always such a, I don't know, it's it's something so subjective about them, right? They're not objective pieces of work. They're not, because often the point is that you don't go and you don't check your story against that of other people's. So even the idea that you said that you had to sort of, you know, I understand, I guess, the potential of shifting things slightly so somebody wouldn't be offended by perhaps something that was said or something private they didn't want to bring out. But I'm very interested by this idea of that you might, did you think, I, I don't necessarily mean I need specifics here, but did anything that people came back to you, did it make you sort of change the way you thought about your story or the story you were telling in the in the memoir? Y- yes. I mean, I never lie in the memoir. Mm. I leave things out. I focus on what's important to say about me, that I don't need to out someone in some way because that's the quote unquote truth. I was careful not to get myself into a position where I had to lie in any significant way, because the point was what I was becoming, what I was understanding about the world. Um, as I've said to a couple of their interviewers, I came to understand that it didn't matter to me in a way that this was my life. Um, I don't actually find my own life that interesting. <laughs> in a way, I, I mean, it's just like, that's what happened. You know, I mean, I don't sit there going, wow. And then this thing happened like, wow, you know, it's, it's just my life. Um, but what I did under, try to undertake was using the specifics of my life to explore embodiment. Mm. And so when you look at it that way, the specifics of someone else's truth um, don't have to be um, unfolded in full because mm. the point is to talk about embodiment and self-knowledge and representation not you know who I was sleeping with at a particular time or Mm. well it's interesting because I think um there's it becomes I mean I suppose this makes sense in what's happening in your life but what starts out a very personal quite small-scale story about your experience you know growing up your experiences being hospitalized your relationship with your family then once you become an adult it branches out and you're much you know you your the emphasis then does seem to come about the people that are in your life and the kind of impact they had on you and how you've grown in relation to them um so I think that definitely to me at least that came off very very strongly as I think as I read the memoir that I realized that as time went on it wasn't so much just about you anymore but it was about your relationships with other people and that was the important you know factor here and I was learning in a way as much about you as I was learning about individual other individuals and then thinking you know branching out more broadly thinking about how I my relationships to others, how I treat people, those sorts of things. So I found it a very, I don't know, a very sort of enlightening book in an in a interesting way that I wasn't perhaps expecting when I started. So thank you for that. Oh, that's lovely to hear. That means a lot to me. I have one other question to ask about the memoir, and I'm slightly embarrassed about asking this question because it's not, not particularly um, thoughtful in one hand, but I was very interested in the chapter titles in your book. Oh. Um, <laughs> there seems to be a running theme of using movies, short stories, novel titles, and I think I was just interested, Is this a was there something conscious here about a form of reappropriation, or are you just a fan who's kind of expressing your your 
love of these things? No, I think all of the titles except one uh, are taken from either horror movies, novels. um, uh, Yeah, horror movies or novels. And that was very deliberate um, because the book is essentially about the idea of my life as a monster. And I wanted to keep framing every story in relationship. I mean, if you know what the movie was or the story, sometimes the connection is more intense than other times. Sometimes it was just like, like I never saw <laughs> the film called Aerobicide, um, but, <laughs> but it exists. And uh, I yeah. had a lot of fun for about a month going through and and making notes about what was the theme in the chapter and what could I, you know, what could I connect it up with? And, oh my God, there's such schlock out there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is it, because I think some of them I knew straight off and was Mm -hmm. there, and then others I was less sure about. And and so, but I loved the idea of it, that it, of course, it's a kind of reminder about this kind of central idea of the monster, but also I just thought, am I dealing with a real kind of horror fan here as well? Oh yeah, that too. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. Um, well, my first question for you um, from our sort of rotor of usual questions, I asked you to uh, tell us about some of the books that are currently on your bedside table. And you've chosen a selection for here, which is um, really interesting, actually. But the first one on it is called Face Off. Um, then there was another called What Can a Body Do? How We Meet the Built World a novel called On Division by Goldie Goldblum, and um, My Favourite Thing is Monsters, a graphic novel. Uh, Could you tell me a bit about these, please? Um, All four are just brilliant, um, but in different ways. Uh, The one I'm currently reading the most assiduously is called Face On by Sharona Pearl, who is an academic at Drexel University outside Philadelphia, And Sharona writes about um, the cultural understanding of the face. Mm -hmm. Face on is actually about uh, face transplants. But she uses that. It's not in any way a um, kind of golly gee examination. It really goes into what the face is in relationship to the rest of the body, um, how we think about plastic surgery, how we think about... uh, where is identity located in the body? Um, histories of anxiety about uh, uh, medical changes to the body, whether or not we are the same people after a significant medical event or intervention. Um, I'm still fairly early in it, but because my field is portraiture, mm-hmm. um, this has been just, a, I can't say enough good things about it. Also, her writing is very accessible. I mean, it's definitely academic, but it's, um, it is open door academic. And so I'm doing a portrait of her right now. We're working over Zoom. Wow. Which is another whole uh, thing I'm engaged in right now. And so we're doing an ethics-based triptych um, over Zoom. So that's one thing. Um, on Division, I recently finished that one. And that is by uh, my first editor, um, and dear friend Goldie Goldblum, who is a Hasidic and has eight children and is queer and wrote maybe the only novel that exists so far about the um, the Satmar community in Williamsburg, the, the absolute extreme cloistered Orthodox community. And in this book, 
a woman in her, I believe, late 50s suddenly finds herself pregnant, sort of incomprehensibly pregnant. And Goldie uses it to unfold uh, ideas about what women, the status of women in orthodoxy, um, gender uh, uh, secrecy, um, the cost of secrecy, uh, queerness, um, in a and somewhat magic realist. Um, she's just a tremendous novelist. Um, I absolutely recommend her book. Um, my favorite thing is Monsters. I guess all four of these, I can just burble, burble, um, <laughs> is a graphic novel, mm. very large graphic novel uh, by Emil Ferris about a young girl who um, is living in kind of a, a fraught family situation and uh, considers herself a monster and uh, encounters other creatures and is sort of in the middle of a murder mystery beautifully drawn, um, complexly drawn, but um, Emil comes from a family of extremely accomplished artists. And it's sort of interesting if you know the work of the rest of her family, there's like a, a through line in the Ferris family aesthetic. Oh, so, wow. you know, look up her mother, um, Eleanor Spies Ferris, her brother, Michael Ferris. They all use this kind of um, dense hatching kind of mark making um kind of a similar uh color palette but for very different uses mm -hmm. um very moving uh, it won like everything and then the fourth uh is nonfiction. um what can a body do by sarah hendren who runs the radical design program at olin college and she has been doing work where disabled people come in and bring in um, a very unique design issue. And so Sarah works with a group of students. I cannot remember if they're undergrad or grad or both, but they take on this question. And in doing so, Sarah guides them through the question of who is the world built for? Mm. What is the built environment? What, what, assumptions are made when we walk into a space it it's everything from like sort of diy approaches to building handmade furniture for young children who have disabilities to questioning uh societal control of the body through design so those are the four that either i'm finishing or have just finished or as with face on am you know still love it strikes me that they're all, um, they obviously all sort of feed into your work in, yes. in, in certain ways. And I suppose I'm wondering how much of your, do you let your work sort of lead your reading interest? Like, is this a fairly stereotypical um, snapshot of your bookshelf that you'd always be reading things that would have some kind of effect in what you're doing? Um, or would you ever move entirely outside of the box and read something that is oh, so different? Trash. <laughs> You just put um, the good stuff out for us. My, my Valiant <laughs> books, you know, like especially these days with <clears throat> with anxiety level, um, mm -hmm. I have lots of just mindless. I mean, there's a limit. There's some trash cans I will not touch. Yeah, but um, but I love murder mysteries. Um, primarily, I love murder mysteries, good ones, and so that's that also makes up a big chunk of my my bookshelf. 
Yeah. Well, I suppose also I just Lucy you said that you're doing a you're doing the portrait of Sharona Pearl. Um, are you reading the book as a sort of as, as, is that feeding into your portrait work, or would you be reading it anyway? And do you do you come across these people's? Would you come across somebody's work and then possibly pursue a portrait with them, or would you sort of have to know them first and and then look at it that way? Uh, when I do someone's portrait, it's almost always based on their work. Okay. I, by which I mean. I encounter someone's work. It used to be I would encounter it in person, you know, mm-hmm. I'd go to a, an event or a conference or a reading or something and be really intrigued by what the person was doing, do some research into understanding their work a little bit more and then invite them to sit for me. Um, so that's, that's pretty typical. Um, in terms of Sharona's book, because I'm really trying to think hard about uh, representation and especially the role of portraiture now. I've done a lot of work on the history of portraiture as it pertains to the disabled body. Um, and there's, there's some writing on that. Um, but I've been finding that looking at uh, monster theory and Sharona's book and history of plastic surgery and uh, and of course, you know, history of things like the freak show um, often open up my questions about portraiture more than a straight up art history text will do. I thought that your sort of way of operating is um, what well, is very fascinating to me. I don't think I've come across another artist who sort of quite had that, the idea of finding someone's work, being very interested in their work and then pursuing the, the portraiture angle. It's a very different way, I think, um, in, in my experience, at least, of working with it. But it, it, it opens up, I suppose, for you so many different ways of seeing that person as well, right? Like you're not just looking at the physical, what they, what they represent in front of you at all. That's almost the last thing you're interested in to a certain degree. Yes and no. I mean, none of these are commissions. I don't mm. do commission at all. I, I do one like once a decade and I almost always regret it um, <laughs> because the ethical relationship between subject and artist in a commission is so one direction. And because I'm really interested in the power dynamic in the studio, I tr- I've been increasingly trying to come up with ways that my risk and my subjects, subject slash collaborators risk is as, um, uh, I don't know if the word is really balanced, but that the stakes are, are similar for the both mm. of us. And that does not happen in commission and it does not happen if I'm paying someone to sit for me either. I don't work with professional models, which is a problem because the people I work with are often extremely busy, hard to come down, you know, or they have physical limitations that make it hard for them to sit for me, or there's a whole, whole range of issues. Um, So it's a little bit like, you know, running after fireflies. Uh, But I also, I mean, there are aspects of the way that the people I work with look that pull me in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, anyone reading the book will quickly see that most of my paintings and drawings, unless they're of me, are of people with some kind of variant body. Not mm-hmm. always. There are definitely a number of exceptions. But most of the exceptions have to do with people who are very intense and unusual in some other way. Right. Um, so there's not a lot of uh, 
Oh, I don't know. I have a lot of colleagues who pick sort of beautiful or striking people and their work is very much about the the tech, you know, like how representational the work is or um, uh, how beautiful the image is or the relationship to some kind of thread in art history. And I, that's just not what I do. For our next question, I wanted to ask you about a recent article or podcast or film that's made you um, think about something in particular. And uh, you've got a couple of answers, one of which um, led me down a bit of an internet rabbit hole that I haven't really come across before. So I sort of have to thank you for this. But could you tell me about this monstrology? Um, that's how you pronounce it. Is it mon monstrolo monstrology? Monstrology, yeah. it is. It sounds, yeah, I feel like I'm saying it wrong, but monstrology um, by Dr. Stephen Asma, who's a professor of philosophy at Columbia College in Chicago. Tell me about his, this is his YouTube channel, right? Yeah, Stephen Asma. <laughs> He's one of these people that after I spend a few minutes with him, I just want to crawl into a closet and weep for my wasted life. <laughs> he's a gifted artist. He's a brilliant theorist, philosopher, uh, researcher in um, uh, the meaning and history of religions, a jazz musician. Cute. Stephen, if you're listening, yes, you know, you're cute. Um, and, uh, just, just sort of a, a nova of a person. And um, reading his book that came out a while ago, he wrote something called On Monsters, mm -hmm. which is a very cogent and interesting and one of the more original, by which I mean early books, on um, laying out monster theory and uh, what the idea of the monster does for us culturally, um, starting as you know, if I remember right, it could even be Sumerian. I'm not sure, but, but, you know, pre-biblical and then going all the way up to at the time, completely current culture. And he really, I had been struggling with my identify identification rather with monsters. And he let me see what monsters do and why we need them and the kind of permissions that they grant us. So after that, Steve, um, I'm not, I think it started a couple of years ago. He started to do these very short little podcast or YouTube, like 10 minutes, um, mm. uh, mini lectures on various monsters. And last night I listened to the one on the golem, which was interesting because Steve, what he's been doing is he'll do a drawing um, while you're, while he's lecturing, he'll show you uh, historical images of the witch or the werewolf or the um, sea creature, whatever it is, the vampire. Um, and then he'll start drawing his own version of it. And so you get a drawing lesson along with a cultural lesson. And you, you saw them. I mean, he's just really yeah. fun. And so I have so much respect for how he can open up a question of like, what is this monster? What does it do? Where did it come from? And then also be so vulnerable in showing us, you know, his own attempt to take on uh, uh, that image right in front of us while he's erasing and saying, well, I screwed that one up. <laughs> you know? And this is how I fixed it. And 
Um, so yeah, I just think they're tremendous fun. And um, I think I'm about to teach a class. I've been teaching a class on and off on um, writing the monster uh, right. people. Um, and so I've assigned uh, his podcasts as the uh, the intro for the class um, for my next workshop. That sounds fascinating. I'm very interested in his sort of, I mean, like I say, I got sort of trapped in this rabbit hole with looking at more and more <laughs> of his stuff yesterday, which I found really fascinating. But this sort of idea that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this sense that um, we can sort of understand our own cultures by looking at how we think of monsters, right? Like this yeah. idea that what do monsters stand for in our culture and how do we how do we have the relationship with them and what do they actually say about us? Um, which I guess I hadn't thought of it in that particular way. And I think I wrote, I think I read an interesting opinion piece in the New York Times by him recently about the pandemic, something about, I think he was writing about this idea of, of us being very scared of the of the of the virus, obviously, but the way that we talk about sort of um, trying to go, um, uh, trying to sort of wage a war against it. But he was pointing mm. out that actually all the virus is there to do. It's not a. It, the point is that it, it's only there to replicate. Like it's just doing its its own thing. And the way that we talk about it tells us much more about ourselves. It tells us very little about the actual virus and how it's going about its, you know, what it needs to do in this world. Um, so it made me, yeah, think about things rather differently. And I suppose for you as well, it's his his particular um, the way that he combines that sort of the artistic, the kind of visual, and with the sort of the storytelling behind the scenes, the sort of cultural references. That's obviously particularly um, you know uh, exciting for you, I suppose. Well, part of the thing about monster studies is that monsters come and go in our culture. For instance, in the 50s, we had a lot of um, sort of pod people uh, stories, right. um, and that had everything to do with communism and the idea of the invasion. Uh, in uh, During the AIDS years, we had vampire stories um, about blood and uh, blood and sex going together. They were very sexy mm -hmm. vampire stories, so it was about the risk of contagion of penetration um, also is a period that gay rights, uh, for obvious reasons, were coming very much to the fore. So again, anxiety about penetration and who is really what and what is the authentic self. Um, you know, lately it's been zombies. Um, and I'm really interested to see, I mean, there was that, I haven't seen them, but I know that there were a couple of movies that came out recently uh, about invisible monsters. Um, oh, yes, of course. And those came out before uh, COVID. But I'm guessing that what's going to come out of this is um, alien invasion stories of, you know, uh, of contagion, of invisible invaders. We're going to be back in that territory for a while or of or perhaps again of like societies in which one part of our society is aligned with a particular identity um, based mm. on a monster idea and that the other, um, I mean, we already had World War Z. It's very eerie, the number of books that came out that um, uh, predicted what we're going through right now. I mean, World War Z is definitely one of them. Yeah, of course. I suppose it's the same way that people talk about how 
sci you know good sci-fi is never about futuristic worlds yeah. it's about the world we live in right it kind of picks up on our fears and our vulnerabilities and, and what we're um, coping with and, and monsters are the same you know well one of the most interesting things to me about monsters isn't just that it's that to me the primary thing that monsters do um in terms of revealing who we are is that monsters um violate boundaries so almost all monsters are an amalgam of two states so living and dead animal and human animal and robot um alien and earthling uh, uh visible invisible there's there's usually two states and um and when they do that i mean if you think of like godzilla we have uh normal animal quote unquote and then uh radiation invasion and so the radiation invasion is about you know obviously at the time it was about nuclear anxiety um and so in looking at what boundary is being violated we see what the primary anxiety is of our moment so um and it also in the other direction in violating the boundary uh, it opens up permission for us to violate a boundary. So, you know, it goes in both directions. It's both the fear of trying to maintain that boundary, but also opening up a space for being other. Yes, of course. So much scope there for, you're right, it's very fascinating to think about what's going to come out of this current moment, you know, because there's something so big that's happening. I suppose you can you can take on sort of smaller um you know, kind of smaller waves, but something that's as big as the pandemic is going to lead to some quite interesting uh, sort of, you know, artistic kind of thinking it through afterwards. Great. Truth and untruth, I think, is going to be the other thing. Yes, of course. Our shelves will be back in just a moment. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Listen. 
Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Riva Lehrer about um, monsters. The way that we talk about them in our society can uh, channel our fears and vulnerabilities of a particular moment. Next up, Riva, I'd like to ask you about a book that has made you think about feminism in a new way. Um, I want to clarify something. Uh you guys asked me in various ways to think about um, things that affected my idea of feminism. Hmm. Um, it's kind of a hard question because feminism for me personally, just personally, is so bound up with my status as a woman. Um, I am definitely a committed feminist, have been my whole life. However, um, I've often not felt like, not felt female in this culture because being disabled and being unusual looking and a lot of things that happen in the book, when you read it, you'll understand why my status as a woman kept getting uh, challenged and diminished. And so um, while I am involved in and completely a believer and allied with and female um feminism often has felt like uh something i was involved in a little bit at a a distance not in terms of the rights of women Mm. but in terms of the identity of what it meant to be female as presented through feminist discourse so um, so it's always been a little hard for me to answer that question. I talked about H's for Hawk because it's, for me, one of the two or three most unforgettable, uh, moving, accomplished, unexpected memoirs I've ever read. Um, are you familiar with it? Yes, yes, it's a brilliant book. And what Helen McDonald does in being... Uh, so she is a, um, I don't know, would you call her a scientist, I suppose? I um, think so, though she's sort of moved into different realms now. She does sort of TV presenting, but yeah, she's, yeah, let's say, let's say a scientist. <laughs> um, I just bought Vesper Flights, but I have not started it yet. Right. Um, been sort of, I have a little part of my bookshelf I call the truffle box. And <laughs> it's the book okay. when I really need something good. Right. Yeah there's a little piece of a shelf that's that's the truffle box and like David Mitchell and Tana French and Helen McDonald and Richard Powers and you know a few other people are are on my truffle box I love that name for it I think I might start adapting that myself <laughs> it's such a lovely idea that it's I, you know the, the perfect and you need those you do need yeah. those books around yeah I often save certain things you know you don't want to read them straight away you want to read them when you really need them Exactly. So, but with her, the way that she talks about, you know, grappling with her her father's death and the profound, profound grief that she was experiencing, almost unmanageable grief, um, and the way that she was sort of flailing, not just for a way of dealing with it, but just to kind of exist. And Mm -hmm. that she stepped outside of, talk about boundary violation, she stepped completely outside of human concerns in a way and began to work with this hawk to try and train it to falconry. And the hawk was not into it. And, uh, 
and, you know, talking about the complexity of her relationship with this hawk. So, you know, uh, McDonald brings together this very personal, very uh, painful to read um, narrative of her own grief and distress and takes it to this relationship, this incredibly difficult and physically painful and anxiety producing relationship with trying to train a hawk to falconry. And the, I'm starting a new book and it's very much, it's fiction and it's very much about um, grappling with um, the implacable nature of death that you cannot, it resists um, anything the human can do. So when you can't uh, accept that, what, how do you handle it? So I, for me, reading that book and her struggle to um, sort of transmute uh, and and to exist, um, I can't. I can hardly even talk about it. It means so much to me. Mm. So, in terms of feminism, what I loved is that um, she didn't. She didn't make a huge deal out of. I am a woman doing this sort of very traditionally male thing. I mean, she, she does touch on it, but that's not the focus. Um, and also the way she talks about grief is very raw and not, not particularly um, sentimental in any way. And so I thought that she really moved away from expectations of how women are thought to talk about things. Mm. So, that's why I chose her. I think, do you know what, this is one of my favourite questions on the show, because I think, um, and, and you're right, it's, you know, feminism is such a loaded term, and for different people, it means so many different things. And it, it's not, you know, my idea of feminism is not your idea of feminism. And, you know, the next person's feminism is very different, and there are problems with it. But it does seem to throw up some of the most interesting answers from our guests in mm. terms of the, the books they choose are really outside of the box like this, you know, and everyone, yourself included, makes such brilliant cases for why these books have made them think differently. And so much of it, I think it seems to come down to the human condition as well that so many of these books like something in this book clearly spoke to you as a fellow human and it and it made you have a certain I don't know how you even explain this exactly but like you say it, it's hard to talk about it there's something there that un broke things open in you about grief and, and and death and life and and you know how we build these relationships with people with animals um and so yeah I think if anything it's a it's a it's a question that I think put people are probably I think people are often quite, um, they have concerns about this question, but it does tend to throw up some of the most interesting answers like yours. So I'm very glad that you stuck with it, despite your uh, problems with it as well. So thank you. Well, you you touched on one of the other things I love about that book um, that I think a lot about when I'm thinking about grief and love. Um, I had a dog for 16 years mm. and I talk about her in my book. Yes. And, um, and when she originally was my service dog. And then, well, I don't want to spoil the story, but uh, when I eventually lost her, um, I really, and I'd had cats before, and but my relationship with my dog was profound. And I realized after uh, she eventually died that um, the nature of the grief and the nature of the love were so weirdly pure that mm -hmm. compared to human 
Love between humans, no matter how deeply you love, it's always complex. There's always mm, shadings yeah. and ways that you do or don't protect yourself or something. But with an animal that you profoundly love, there's just no boundary at all. There's just nothing. And so both the love and the grief are just... They're just out of interest. Have you ever read... Um... Sigrid Nunez's um, novel, The Friend, about oh, her relationship. Afraid to do it. it. Are you okay? We had afraid. Sigrid was one of the guests on the podcast last oh. year, and she spoke so eloquently and fascinatingly about um, about writing that book and and the, her latest book that's also has got a cat in it, but it's not quite the same way. But also about how to write about animals and our relationships to them in a sort of way that opened up my eyes to different things. So I, I mean, I would highly recommend it. I'd heard her do some interview stuff here. Yeah. But this is my kind of book, but I would need to do some heavy drinking. (laughs) (laughs) Prepare yourself. It's a, I mean, it's a beautiful, there's something so, and I think that, I suppose in an interesting way, what you say about the sort of purity or the unmediated sense of it, that book really knocked me off my feet because I'm not even a particular animal lover. I wouldn't count myself. I've never, I've had, you know, never really had pets and things. And that book just floored me. There's something so pure about the way she writes about this relationship and it's not sentimental. There's nothing sort of, you know, it's, it's not um, falling into the expected categories of, of what you might expect when somebody's writing about a relationship with an animal. Um, but I would highly recommend it. It sounds like something that you would enjoy, but yeah, maybe, maybe when you're not feeling quite so raw, I don't know. <laughs> and last up, uh, we'd like to ask you if you could name a woman or a non-binary person whom you admire, um, which is always a tricky question because there must be so many, but if you just had to pick one, who would you choose and why? Well, there are two candidates for that. One is Catherine Ott, who is the curator of medical history at the American Museum of Smithsonian. Mm. And the other one is my friend and former student, Cassidy Early, who is a young, a young artist, uh, non-binary. Um, and I'll just say parenthetically about Cass- Cassidy is that uh both in queer culture and in disability culture, Cassidy is allied with the first. Um, it's been really interesting to watch how younger practitioners, uh, how their work is different from the work of people of my generation because they're walking into a culture that already exists. And, you know, for me, I mean, feminism, feminist culture was existed when I was young, but it was sort of, you know, early-ish, second wave. And disability culture basically not barely existed. And so, you know, I'm part of the people that built some of the parameters of the latter. And so both seeing young practitioners in disability culture and in queer culture making work where there's already a discourse set up, um, where you don't have to invent that and where where they go um, because they already have uh, something to grapple with um, that's yeah. there. But Catherine, um, so Catherine, as I said, is curator of medical history at the Smithsonian. And she's been a friend for a, a number of years now. And what Catherine did is really fascinating. Before, for, 
from the way I understand it, before uh, she took the job, um, the way that um, the museum depicted disability was very much medical model. It was very much about here's the history of diseases. Here are the people who tried to cure them. Here are various instruments and attempts and narratives based on doctors and pandemics and uh, breakthroughs and this kind of thing. And what Catherine did was it's not that she doesn't uh, present that kind of material, but she really shifted things first off to social model where she's not only talking about disability, but the, the, the patient's view of embodiment and a much more interior representation. She's brought an enormous amount of a uh, number of artifacts from the history of disability into the connect into the collection. The way she curates is very clearly uh, based on disability justice and disability rights um, without it being incredibly heavy handed. I mean, your average person going in is going to connect with the material, but they're going to connect with a different story. And then the other thing she did, which I just, I think I know for a fact was not easy, which is that Catherine is queer. And I don't know if she says queer or lesbian, um, but she used, uh, um, or she, she found in the story of AIDS a way to connect disability rights and LGBTQ, et cetera, rights. And so she also has this astonishing collection of uh, um, queer and gay and lesbian and trans histories. Um, like she, she's worked with Gert McMullen, who's one mm -hmm. of the originators of the AIDS of the quilt. Yeah. Um, and has, you know, pieces of the original quilt. She's worked with Matthew Shepard's family. Um, she's almost every major milestone in American, uh, you know, rainbow history. Um, she has brought into the museum. And if I understand right, when she first started to do that, the museum balked and, you know, really wasn't interested in any of this, wasn't interested in disability history, wasn't interested in queer history, just like, let's have our medical story. And so she just quietly stood her ground. And she also has a really brilliant um, philosophy of acquisition, which is that you don't necessarily anymore go off and hunt. You open up the space for things to exist in the museum, you, you establish a concern and that objects start to come to you. Right. So you sort of invite them in, in a way. You, you show that you're open to these things becoming important or having that recognition, right? And it's a much more less hegemonic way of thinking about a museum. And yeah. so I think the way that she has woven these things together, brought them in, like she's she's done funny exhibits like, the history of the tooth fairy where she has like little, little boxes and like tons and tons of baby teeth. And I, you know, like stuff that's just completely fun and, wow. and from left base. So I, I don't want her to sound like this, you know, incredibly person. She, she's very playful, but I think 
for me, the way that she reimagines what the museum is, mm. and what it means to collect and what it means to let people know their own history. No one I can think of does it better than she does. It just so much grace. Well, I mean, yeah, you've sold me on, I need to go and look up everything she's done and, and all these exhibits. But also it's interesting that of the two people you've talked about, you've talked about somebody who is sort of, you know, making a space for history and making a space for histories that maybe weren't kind of considered before. And then you're also talking about someone who's kind of striving and pushing forward into the future. So there's a real sense of continuity there as well when you're looking at these people who have been important in your life. I think that's very true. I think that, you know, as I say in the book, we are all um, creatures of our place and time. Mm -hmm. And I'm extremely aware of that in my own life, that had I been born in a different location at a different time, even by a few miles or less than a decade, my life would be completely different. And depending on which direction we're talking, I wouldn't be here. So the the extremely thin margin of what your story becomes is just, it's so specific. It's so specific to both those things. So I think that an awareness of history and where you step into it um, is on my mind a lot. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end it. Thank you so much, Reva. This has been a joy. Thank you so much. No, thank you. Thank you for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Reva Lehrer. Thank you very much, Reva. That was a fascinating conversation. Um, And tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.